You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey, what's up? It's your toes talking here. That's a nice alpine climb you got there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. Like when we get cold. Life gets pretty miserable, eh, hotshot? Instead of a ballerina up there, you feel like a walrus. Not a svelte walrus who swims all day, but one of them big ones who lets seagulls crap on them. And if we ever do warm up again, well, get ready to howl like a banshee. And not a cool banshee that scares everybody, but one of them banshees the other banshees make fun of for sounding stupid. So get with it, buddy, and get some sick mountain boots from Sportiva. That's right, Italian-made. So high-tech they're like, what? Oh, we gotta go? All right, just listen to your toes and check out all of Sportiva's ice climbing and big mountain boots at Sportiva.com or your local shop. And tell them your toes sent you. Does your neck hurt playing someone else's project? Does your partner get in way over his head even on the warm-ups? Does the phrase, I'll just do this move one more time, make your eyeballs spin? Then let belay specs fight for you. When my boyfriend started falling lower and lower on his project, belay specs saved my neck and got me a new boyfriend. Belay or neck pain, also known as BNP, can interfere with work, play, family, and snapping your head around at the gym to check out those abs. And you have rights, which are being crushed every time your partner yells take. So if your neck has been injured in an epic belay session, go to belayspecs.com to see if you qualify for a pair of belay specs and to get what you deserve. Entry Normacast at checkout for a discount. Belay specs is not licensed to give legal advice to anyone. Results may vary by steepness. If belay specs cause you to trip, fall down, run into a door, nausea, dry mouth, you're probably too high to climb to begin with. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is the 15th of November, 2020, about 8.30 in the morning. And this is episode 208 of the Enormocast. And this is take seven or eight of this start. So I am trying to talk clearly now so I do not flub it up. On today's episode, I talked to Margot Talbot ice climber, survivor, and author. A few years ago, she wrote a book called All That Glitters, A Climber's Journey Through Addiction and Depression. And there's a new edition out from Rocky Mountain Books with a forward from my friend, 
Michael Kennedy. And Margo's been on my radar for years. She's one of the two climbing Margos I'd like to have on the show. So we're halfway there to the all Margo, all the time editions of the Enormacast. And once the other Margo comes on, then I'll open it up to all the Margos. If you've clipped a couple bolts, maybe climbed in the gym and your name's Margo, let's have you on the show. Anyway, I had talked to Margo Talbot a couple times very casually at the URA Ice Fest about coming on, and we had never gotten it done. But uh, I got an email from Rocky Mountain Books about the new edition, and I checked out all that glitters. In one night, I actually kind of devoured it, and then uh, we got in touch a couple days later via the internet. And the cool thing is Margot is used to getting on the internet. She does uh, some speaking and through the internet, so her sound is amazing. She sounds incredible. She was ready to go. Mic, studio, the whole thing. Fascinating story, a deep story. We talk about climbing. We talk about addiction. talk about healing. And real quick, before we get to it, I do want to give a shout-out to a place, a publisher like Rocky Mountain Books, like Mountaineers. These folks up there, both of them up there, just across the border from each other, kind of, uh, putting out small run climbing books, you know, stuff that a lot of big, gigantic publishers won't touch. But for that to happen, you guys need to support these folks as well. So if you do get all that glitters or check out all the titles that come out of a place like Rocky Mountain Books, and if you can, if you can figure it out, go to the source for your copy. Pony up some loonies for that thing. But it is also available everywhere books are sold. comes out on your Kindle, whatever you're into. Check it out. Highly recommend it. And as a teaser to the whole book, because we don't reveal everything in this interview, enjoy this conversation with Margot Talbot. Well, girls and boys, the sun's coming up later and later and the darkness is upon us. But cowpokes like us know that when the going gets cold and dark, we still get going with a double shot and a dawn patrol. That's right. Up before the rooster's pecking and the cows are mooing, and out the door for those perfect turns or perfect conditions. And though most of us aren't galloping into the office anymore with hands chalky and our ski pants swishing, doesn't mean that your Dawn Patrol humble brag isn't just as effective when you're five minutes late to that Zoom call. Sorry, folks, you casually say, I'm just not myself if I don't get up at three in the morning and go send some sick shit while y'all are sleeping. Black Diamond is here to support your morning mania with equipment for the Dawn Patrol. Headlamps to light up the pre-dawn hours, the perfect layering systems to peel as you heat up and the sun finally does come up. Ski gear for the punch-drunk 4am skiers, climbing gear for the unrested and off-route climbers, and even bouldering pads, cause let's face it, you're gonna numb out and dry fire. So wake up, buckaroos, and though caffeine may seem like all you need, let Black Diamond supply all the gear you need to get up and get down on your next dawn patrol. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. So my first question to Canadians in general, Canadian climbers in general, and, and more specifically, where, where are you located right now? I live in Canmore, Alberta, okay, in the heart awesome. of the Canadian Rockies. Yeah, so you're, you're like primed for this question, but my first question is always, am I still a legend in Canmore? <laughs> Of course you are, Chris. Good answer. (laughs) Everyone knows who you are. (laughs) Someday I will return. (laughs) 
<laughs> just I know they're wait, awaiting my triumphant return. We're saving uh, first ascents yeah. for you. Come on, buddy. <laughs> Actually, interestingly, you say that, but a, a long-standing open project uh, in the ghost of mine got got climbed this uh, last summer by uh, a group including uh, RAF. So um, that was my last pending piece of business there, sitting there for like 15 years waiting for someone to climb it. So here's to those guys getting after it. Here's to them. Closure for you, too. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but yeah, all joking aside, I used to hang out in Canmore. And when I was reading your book, I was kind of... In my mind, I was like, well, you know, we're not the same age, but, uh, uh, you know, it's like we're, we're pretty close. And um, I'm like, maybe some of this crossed through. And then suddenly you actually dropped a date in there around 2002, I think, talking about Canmore. And uh, that's exactly when I was like hanging around a little bit, um, although I was mostly back in the ghost. And so there was a I was just like, oh, OK. And then that helped me, you know, I mean, anytime you have familiarity, but then. You know, it put like that scene in perspective, not just there. I had never been to Jasper, but, you know, that Bow Valley all the way up to their area, um, what the culture was like, what the climbing culture was like. So um, it was kind of cool for, for that suddenly to cross in there. And when did you end up in Canmore originally? I moved to Canmore in 1995, 1994, sorry, from Jasper. Right. And it's interesting you bring up the climbing culture because the climbing culture in Jasper was very different than the Bow Valley. Mm -hmm. And the climbing culture today in 2020 is very different from the climbing culture back in the 90s. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all over the, the world, probably, but certainly in North America. I mean, it's changed pretty, pretty drastically. Um, yeah, I mean, tell us a little bit about that, uh, that difference, you think, um, with Jasper, and then we'll get in maybe a, a jumping off point in terms of your story. Uh, in relation to your book, might be that move, because I think it was a very pivotal uh, move for you from even just a ways from Jasper to Canmore. Yeah, it's probably one of the most pivotal decisions I made in my lifetime. So I lived in Jasper from 84 to 94. I started climbing in 1992. I started dating Ken Wallader, a real fixture of Canadian Rockies ice climbing, a local Jasper boy. Mm -hmm. The community in Jasper was really small. And it was really uh, friendly. It was really, I mean, you didn't, you couldn't afford to not be friendly if there's only three ice climbers in town. Right. <laughs> you don't want to piss off two of them, but you don't have any partners. Uh, and so, and then when tragedy hit, it was always close to home because everybody knew everybody really well and had climbed right. with, with everybody. So yeah, I moved to the Bow Valley in 94. I literally got up one morning. I was working for a log builder, and so was Ken, just outside of uh, Jasper toward Hinton. I literally got up one morning and packed up everything in the log cabin. It was a knapsack full. I just literally got in my truck and drove down to the Bow Valley and never went back. And it was one of those decisions where I knew I needed a reset in my life. And I didn't know how else to do it except to go to a new place where nobody knew anything about me or my past. Yeah, and it's, I mean, what's the distance, like, ge geographically? It's not that far away. It was about three and a half hours right. away, but right. for me, it was a world away. Okay. I didn't know a soul in Canmore. Um, I, I kind of knew a woman that used to live in Jasper, but not very well. It was, it was like a clean break, and I had, I had recently gotten off street drugs, 
And coming down here, there was no chance that I was going to be hanging out with my druggy buddies. There was no chance that people were going to offer me some or ask if I was going to do some. That's primarily why I wanted the clean break. It's really hard to reinvent yourself where people know you because they continuously remember the stories about you. And in Jasper, there were a lot of outrageous stories about me back in the day. And people, they never let you jump out of the character that they had formed in their mind about who you were. Mm -hmm. Came down to Camor, totally clean slate, bigger valley, more people. The weather flows through the Bow Valley a lot faster than it does in Jasper. So it just just felt like breezy, fresh air. It really felt like a new beginning. And looking back on it, it truly was. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where... And I think writing your book, um, and obviously we're we're starting to people haven't read the book and they really should. All that glitters is the title. Um, and writing the book, I'm sure, probably brought up these these pivotal moments that maybe didn't you didn't have perspective on. Um, and and I, frankly, there were a lot of them, good and bad. I think that that you brought up in in the book. And um, you know, we're going to kind of elucidate some of that right now. But the 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 one thing that was really interesting about jasper the jasper scene and at least the way you were interacting with it that was very different again if if we're talking about i started what what you said started climbing in 1992 is that what you said yeah so i mean we're talking that's you know one thing another thing we're contemporary with is that i started more or less in in 1990 89 1990 so right in the same zone now obviously rock climbing for me a little more so than ice climbing but i started ice climbing pretty quickly after that um but this scene this like the way you guys described interacting with each other and climbing in a place like Jasper was very different from, you know, the climbing scene that I had. Um, and so can you uh, talk a little bit about what the crossover between, let's say, the climbing people you were hanging out with and the and the sort of people that you were partying with in a place like Jasper? Was it integrated? Were you walking back and forth to two communities? Um, how did it sort of work in your life then that you found climbing through at the same time that you were pretty heavily into sort of a a nightlife and party scene. Well, Jasper has a bigger party scene and and, Mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you the difference in one story. When I lived in Jasper, if you got caught out partying late and didn't make your climbing date, that was considered okay. When I Uh. moved down to the Bow Valley, that was not okay. And even as far back as I've been climbing in Jasper, like recently, it's Mm -hmm. still it's still okay. <clears throat> it's just a different, different priorities. It's, it's kind like of, part you know, of doing business. Yeah. That you might not. The climb's yeah. always going to be there. The party's right. not. <laughs> okay. Come, come on. Uh, it's probably not as bad now as it was back right, then. Right. But the, the crossover was Ken was a partier. Right. Uh, like of my caliber. So mm-hmm. we were each other's climbing partner, mainly for the f- you know first three years that I climbed and so if we got caught out at the bar too late and didn't make it up to climb the next day, well, all was good. Right. Yeah. No one could blame the other person is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> no one was sitting in their car, in their truck waiting for someone to come out of their house in the middle right? of the night. Right. Because you had another drink too. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we're kind of laughing about this and yet it was pretty, you know, a lot of these turns were very tragic, not just for you, but I mean, so, I'm sure some of these other people didn't last um, through through this era either. And and yet in climbing too, you know, we sort of, I think a lot of the older mythology of climbing before sort of sport climbing and performance climbing 
you know, is sort of infused with this idea that you sort of climb hard and you party hard, even like from going all the way back to sort of our roots in British climbing, you know, with the Don Willens types. And, you know, it was sort of, it's like in the ether that it's, you know, part of being a hard mountain person is this ability to do both and to get both done. And it's interesting that, you know, you left that behind and Canmore, I think probably in, in that era was on the cusp of this other idea of this, you know, performance climbing kind of idea that we've really honestly very heavily moved into, um, I think, all across North America. Um, what's your perspective on that, on the different scenes in terms of that? I would say that when I started climbing, it was the climbing world was filled with rogues and outsiders. Mm. Climbing's very mainstream now, and it's very competitive. All of the things you see in mainstream, in the mainstream society, are now part of the climbing culture. Another thing that's very different is we were very self-sufficient back then. Mm -hmm. If we thought something could happen, we simply didn't go. Whereas nowadays, people, they get out their inReach and their spot and their cell phone. They get their modern avalanche equipment out and they're, they're just, it's just kind of more of a, you know, well, we'll just go for it because, you know, we've got helicopter rescues and mm -hmm. comms. And I'm noticing there's a big difference in it, like like risk taking. So you feel like that you were more willing to like shut it down and wait for for a different day as opposed to, you know, this kind of almost like this constant battle to to show who's getting more rad in the mountains is kind of what it feels like sometimes. We'll put it this way. I felt like back then people were in the mountains because they wanted to be in the mountains. They wanted mm -hmm. to be in nature. It, it was an arena of self-growth, you might call mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like nowadays it it's it's uh it's like vertical soccer. Obviously, it's more demanding. And it's more right. dangerous. But now it has turned into what I believe everything else in our culture turns into, which is a competition becomes about different things than communing with nature and growing as a person through risk and adventure. I mean, you struggled for many years with depression, with suicidal thoughts, uh, drug abuse to cover those things. And that's really the the issues in the book, which is um, a really hard hitting uh, memoir of those years. From the period when you kind of found climbing to this, this dark night of the soul, which is at least in the narrative is presented as a place where you um, began to kind of really, really break through. Um, what was the period between those two things of, of of getting into climbing and Jasper and then this moment, I believe, in Canmore, um, where you felt like maybe there was a, a breakthrough? It was a five-year period. So I uh, started climbing in 92, and it was uh, 1997 when I, I called it my conversation with death. I didn't know if people were going to uh, relate to that, and I didn't know if my editors were going to leave it in, but... I truly felt on that day that I was having a conversation with my dark side, mm -hmm. my demons, a devil inside of me, that I felt either the demons were going to destroy me, I felt that very viscerally in my body, or I was going to overcome. And in ultimately, I did overcome, as we know, from, you read the book, and here I am. Yes, here you are, right. But it felt like one of the most moments of my life that it's invisible. Nobody was there. Nobody saw it. And yet to this day, it's one of the most intense things that has ever happened to me. I can't really explain it any better than to say I had a conversation with death and I decided that I wanted to live. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, you know, sort of the, the pinnacle of the story in the book and the, 
the reason I also struggled a little bit with, first of all, I, I blew through the book in a night, um, which is probably not the best way to prepare for an interview because I just like ate it up. But also I had trouble, like it was a lifetime, you know, it, 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 this period. And, and the book goes way back into your, your, um, your youth as well. But this period felt like a lifetime of things that had happened to you or relationships and, you know, being sort of fringe involved in a drug cartel. And I mean, all this stuff. And I'm like, well, how long has this been? You know, like it, it feels like this could have been 25 years of dealing with this stuff. It was so jam packed into, um, you know, just kind of uh, a manic up and down within your life. Um, but this through line that at least from 92 to then was climbing. I kind of wanted to ask you some questions about the the climbing as sort of an anchor or uh, pun intended, I suppose, um, or therapy Um did it feel like that right from the beginning, like when you um, when you first uh, swung the tools or whatever? And, and um, did it feel like something that that was going to be maybe a, a place to go to to help deal with some of these other things? Yeah, the first day I went climbing, Ken and I went out. We drove down the parkway, climb called mm-hmm. Meltout. Mm-hmm. And I stood at the base. He put the rope up. And the moment I started climbing... I felt joy for the first time in my life without the use of a heavy dose of street drugs. It was like I got pulled into the moment so deeply. Climbing is very physically demanding, especially for someone that's spending most of the time partying. I just remember the sound of the axe going into the ice. I remember thinking to myself, how cool is this? Like, like I'm climbing up a frozen waterfall. I had this feeling of joy inside of my body. And by the time the day was over, I I knew I was going to be able to give up drugs for climbing because I had never encountered anything besides drugs that took me out of my pain, took me out of my my regular state of being, what uh, Don Juan calls the assemblage point in his, uh, uh, Don Juan, the yaki sorcerer, calls Mm -hmm. the assemblage point. It's that... We all walk around and, you know, you're Chris and I'm Margo and we all have these personalities and Margo keeps doing this over and over and Chris keeps doing this over and over. Very few things knock us out of that. Tragedy knocks people out of it. Like say someone whose child dies or something like like tragedy can absolutely knock you out of your assemblage point. But um, this wasn't tragedy. It was the opposite. It was like I had found my passion and I now define passion as something that when you do it, the rest of the world literally disappears. And and ice climbing was that for me. And I've since found out, since I've been on my healing journey, I've read a lot of books, and a lot of books about trauma, and they talk about this thing called pendulation. And pendulation is, if you're always, if you've always got trauma bleeding into your life, which was me when I was suicidally depressed, you never get a break. So pendulation is when you do something that brings you a lot of joy, which for me was the climbing, And then it gives you energy and strength to go into the Pandora's box of demons. Mm -hmm. And then when you can't handle the demons anymore, you pendulate back and you go out climbing and you get this, you know, the fresh air and the sunshine for sure in the exercise, but you also, you just get something that brings you so much joy. You want to live, you want to keep on living. It gives you the energy to go back in and look at the demons again, because healing through trauma is extremely difficult in a culture that doesn't know a lot about trauma. 
so I had to do a lot of things on my own. This is before neuroscience and before all this, these books came out about how your brain changes itself and stuff. I, I feel like we know a lot more today than I knew back then. And I felt like I had to figure it out. You, you'll remember from the book that I was diagnosed with manic depression, uh, speaking of my life looking like it was manic. So I was offered pharmaceutical drugs and I chose not to take them for two reasons. One, I was already on street drugs and I wasn't going to quit them. And I knew you weren't supposed to do both at once. So so I didn't take them for that reason. I also knew that my medication, I instinctively knew that my street drug self-medication was hiding something, was covering up some sort of problem. I didn't know what it is at, what, at the time, what it was at the time. I just knew there were reasons for what was going on in my life. And I believe there's reasons for many people's psychological issues, but it's far easier to take a pill. I'll say this, even having healed myself and believing completely in the healing modalities, it's far easier to take a pill than it is to walk through what I walked through. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that analogy or pendulation is not necessarily an analogy, but the pendulum part of it is the analogy. You know, it implies that you do have to go through the demons, the, the, the reasons, the, the underlying reasons. Um, at least in your case, you had to go through those to heal. Um, so, you know, because in the pendulum sort of thing, I think like, okay, well, there's climbing. Why not just keep the fricking pendulum stuck over there? You know, like, let's just go climbing all the time. Uh, but I feel like in, in, you know, reading your book and also my understanding of things like this, that the pendulum has to swing back through eventually and swing out the other side, if you will, to heal. Is that a, you know, would that be sort of a, a proper extension of the analogy in terms of the way you healed? Yes. I believe we're all we're all faced with our healing eventually. A lot of people don't face it until their deathbed. Some people don't face it until they retire or they get older. We all have to reckon with ourselves. I had to reckon early. My life became a nightmare. I, I had very deep trauma. A lot of people just have regular ups and downs of, mm -hmm. of life and they can actually avoid doing any reckoning or healing until they get close to death. I actually think it's a gift to have a life that's a nightmare because when you're forced to reckon with your life, it, it's, an, it's an intense but an amazing journey. And when I meet other people that have been on the journey, they've been through trauma. I work with young kids. They've, committed, they've tried to commit suicide. They woke up in a hospital. Now they're alive. There's... It's an amazing crucible. It's not unlike climbing. It's it it's like like a non climber thinks climbers are crazy. Why the hell would you go out in minus ten degrees and Celsius and climb up a frozen water? It's cold. It's uncomfortable. Healing in general, but healing from trauma is like climbing frozen waterfalls inside of yourself. You're doing it, and people are like, "Why do you think about this stuff? Why are you doing this?" Well, the main reason is it's the gift that keeps on giving because every time I heal a part of myself, I get to live from this new level. And then when I have another, I have another jump up to another level of being, another level of healing, well, I get to live the rest of my life. So if you say, consider that at Jasper, my rock bottom, I'm living down here and that's my everyday reality. Well, now my everyday reality is up here and it's because I did all that hard work. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. You know, when I was reading the book, and also I, I listened to uh, TED Talk that I think you, I think it was a TED Talk. You were standing in front of a big fireplace. 
That's the TED yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. You know, and, and and it occurred to me like that crowd in probably it was in Camor, I believe, um, have this understanding of climbing. I have this understanding of climbing, but what a different perspective that would be reading your book, uh, learning about your life from that perspective of of like climbing being just another crazy weird thing that that Margot got into in this whole era. You know what I mean? Like from the beginning, I realized as soon as you started climbing ice i was like aha you know this is this is an important thing and this is you know going to going to be part of the puzzle i think of healing actually i knew that right away because of what i know about climbing another person that looks at your life would just at least without the the backstory would be like well why the hell did she do that like that's totally nuts as well it's just part of more of her acting out or whatever it happens to be i think you're right i think a non-climber reading the book would think oh great here's another high risk activity Sure. Here's another manifestation of her mania. Uh, here's another way that she's destroying her life potentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas climbers instinctively understand. Yeah. And I tried to get that across to non-climbers in my book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is that like there's one thing that you mentioned repeatedly and you just mentioned it sort of um, that I think most people would just blow off. But as a non-ice climber, someone who, 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 speaking of healing, I healed from my addiction to ice climbing. No, I got out of ice climbing. <laughs> it's sort of a running joke on the show. But, um, you know, the fact that you lived in your truck occasionally in freaking Canadian winter is like, <laughs> like total. I mean, I'm just like, holy shit. Like that woman, I mean, aside from... The other issues is tough as freaking nails. If she's like in and out of her truck and like you just said, minus 10 degrees Celsius weather. And like, I mean, that's astounding. And I think it's something that a, a non-climber wouldn't even notice other than like, oh, poor woman, she was homeless. I'm like, no, no, no. She was homeless in like negative 10, like boots frozen, hands for like, that's insane. So uh, good on you for doing that anyway, for surviving that. <laughs> well, thanks. It's uh, I. Ken and I lived on the Icefields Parkway for two winters full-time. Yeah. And we regularly had periods of minus 30, minus 40 Celsius back then. Exactly. Yeah. Luckily, uh, we stayed in the truck most of the time, but there were shelters along the highway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we would chop wood. I mean, all we we were hung tarps, but we could at least start a fire, dry out our gear, warm ourselves up. You're still sleeping in minus 30, mind you. But uh, yeah, six years I lived in my truck. Yeah, that's like I said, the Canadian winter living in your truck thing. Like, <laughs> hats off. I mean, if that didn't kill you, I don't know. I don't know much else will. So, but but um, aside from that, like, kind of making light of that, um, I kind of wanted to dig a little bit into this climbing thing. Obviously, we're on a climbing podcast, but um, you know, again, the narrative and and you did take pains to make you know to to sort of point out how important that was to your healing and it comes across like very authentically and and um again having an understanding of what the benefits are um but at the same time sometimes and maybe not and you can maybe refute this in your case but um i've actually seen climbing become its own avoidance its own in a way addiction um you know like you said or like i was kind of pointing out with the pendulum like people want to make force that pendulum to stay there and uh, i keep like i keep running this pendulum thing in my head because it's super cool because to make a pendulum stay up in its you know that that sort of 
apex of its swing is extremely difficult. And yet people, you know, work super hard to keep that freaking thing from swinging back into real life. Um, did that ever play out? I mean, did it ever sort of seem like at times it was just another way of, of avoiding things or, or did it remain most of the time this uh, this place of, of peace and of, of, of being able to get out of there? People have asked me if I traded in one addiction for another when I started climbing and I would say that I People did. like me. <laughs> People like you. I would say that I did, except it couldn't remain an addiction because I kept getting pushed back to my sure. trauma. I could not sustain keeping the pendulum up there the way some people can. So here's how I define addiction. Addiction is something that you do continuously and obsessively to keep from dealing with your life mm. or your life's responsibilities. So let me start with drugs. I did drugs to take me away from my pain and my everyday life. There's people nowadays like Tim Ferriss who wants to likes to microdose with psilocybin because he wants to go more deeply into himself. So there's the same substance, drugs. I'm using it to escape myself and Tim Ferriss is using it to go more deeply into himself. Mm-hmm. Now let's move to climbing. I used climbing to go more deeply into myself because my emotional fears came up. A lot of stuff came up for me. It was a crucible of healing. Sometimes it it was a when I didn't feel good about myself. Yes, I it was. I kind of used it like an addiction. But here's an activity called climbing, and I use it for personal development and healing and facing fears and stuff. And yet I meet many people that don't do any personal healing through climbing. They just want to go climbing. And so is it an addiction for them? Well, it depends. Is there any negative impacts? Are they running away from the responsibilities of their everyday life? Are they addicted to um, are they addicted to validation? Are they addicted to fame? Are they addicted? You get the point. Mm-hmm. That's when people are have ventured off into the addictive realm of mm-hmm. extreme sports as opposed to the healing journey of a crucible called climbing. In your life, uh, through your book, you've pointed out, you know, it was a lot about relationships, good and bad relationship with your mother, which was, which was bad, um, relationship with your dad kind of went both ways. And then you got into your later life and your, and your time in Camor in particular, and there became these relationships that I think, uh, were as important to your healing as any other one. Can you sort of talk about, um, how, you know, those relationships, the good ones, the ones that, that kept throwing you a lifeline uh, fit into how you ended up, you know, surviving, frankly, which is a big part of the book. Obviously, the spoiler is, is you wrote the book, so you're still alive and you're sitting here still have to. But still, it's just an amazing that you made it, to be honest. I mean, that that you you went through that many moments of being on the brink and, and kind of came back, which um, I still think has a toughness that part part of it but the original question being like talk a little bit about those relationships and what they meant to you um in those years uh after you started climbing and coming out of um or going towards healing so when i first moved down to canmore i was introduced to karen mcneil and the reason we were introduced is there were not many women ice climbers back in that time period and they're I know there were a few in the States, but there definitely were very few in the Canadian Rockies. I rarely ran into a woman out ice climbing. So we got introduced 
and Karen and I ended up becoming very uh, good friends. We had a very deep friendship and she was the first person that I admitted to uh, one things that had happened to me in my past and two that I was suicidally depressed. In, in reference to like the fresh start, you, you didn't necessarily want to advertise that around Cam more. Um, so it, she it, was a woman that, that you, you felt that you could confide in. Yeah. I didn't confide in anyone in Jasper. I was just a partier. Right. I, I didn't t- tell people why I was partying or the demons Yeah, no, that's underlying. not, yeah, it's not like the big discussion at the bar or whatever. <laughs> Let's all talk about why we're doing this. It's not really right? that common. No. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so when I moved down here, I just, I'd freshly quit the drugs. I moved down to Canmore. I thought quitting drugs, my life was just going to go on an upward trajectory. I was like, oh, drugs are the problem. And I quit the drugs and I became even more suicidal and more depressed than ever because I didn't have my self-medication anymore. And I didn't see that coming. So I came down, I met Karen, and before I knew it, I was in this downward spiral of suicidal depression and she was my my closest friend at the time. Mm-hmm. And she eventually, uh, I don't want to say made me, but she eventually helped me find professional help because she was so alarmed and scared by my suicidal tendencies. I mean, how did you appear to the climbing community down there? Was there, could, could you keep it inside and, and, and hide it in your house or hide it by, by being away from people? Um, for the most part, do you believe, or, or what do you think about that in terms of, of, um, how you presented yourself? I presented myself as this incredibly tough, stoic person that tough as nails, nothing, which of course, you know, I am living in my truck in minus 30. I presented to the world this very strong, tough outside, which it's true, but it was also a bit of a facade, maybe a lot of a facade. Whenever I was depressed, I didn't go out and nobody noticed because you just, you don't call people to go out climbing. You you don't, like you just don't tell anybody and you just stay in your house. So nobody ever saw that side of me. It was completely hidden. And yes, I would be in the house suicidal in my worst period when Karen was in in that friendship with me in my mid thirties, I would be in the house for weeks at a time, suicidally depressed, uh, unable to really eat, unable to function more than to keep myself alive and to be completely taken over by my trauma or by my demons. And the turnaround point was that conversation with death. I, I was I was just going downhill to the point where I couldn't even get out of bed. I had so little energy, no will to live. And the conversation with death was the turnaround point. I actually met Karen uh, in that time when I was in Camor, just just casually. And then, you know, knew Sue Nod as well through climbing in Indian Creek and things like that. And um, you know, they disappeared on on uh, Foraker. But when I was when I was reading the book and you're, you, you're talking about this incredible relationship with Karen, you know, again, as a climber, a different perspective and someone who knows the history, I was like, oh, no, like this. How is this going to to end? Um, it ended up in the epilogue, the disappearance of Karen. But, you know, I, I was sort of waiting for that to be another blow. Um, can you can you. I mean, it didn't happen, I don't think, within the period that you talk about in the book, and that's why it's in the epilogue. But can you talk a little bit about losing Karen as a friend and and, um, and w- how difficult that was? Or were you able to um, to rely on the years that you had had, had um, a friendship with her to, to sort of help soften that? 
Yeah. Um, losing Karen was uh, incredibly difficult. The reason I didn't put it in the book, Alison Ozius actually wrote me after she read my book and she said, I can't believe that Karen's a footnote in your epilogue. And I wrote her back and I said, it was too huge for okay. me. If if I wrote a sentence, I would have written an encyclopedia. The other thing is, I had spent the whole book overcoming kind of setback after setback, blow mm -hmm. after blow. I could not take my reading audience back there again. I did not. I, I, I was I was climbing up out of this dark hole myself. Sure. And Karen's death took me back into a dark hole, to, uh, to be sure. I, I'm not going to lie about that. But I did not want to take my reader back there. I, I'm happy to write a book about Karen. I'm happy. I've already started it. Mm -hmm. I don't know when or if it'll ever get published. But sure. I'm happy to write about it now. And I'm happy to tell my readers that, you know, it, it never ends. You get you get setbacks in life all the time. But I did want my story for the little Margot who's not a climber and doesn't know me and doesn't know mm -hmm. Karen, I wanted a little Margot to pick up that book and go, there's a world out there and I don't have to kill myself. A and I didn't want that little Margot to then start reading about the other pains that happen in life, mm -hmm. you know, like losing Karen, uh, other tragedies and, you know, losing my father, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, again, when I, when I was reading it, I, I you know, that was like, uh, as soon as you, you, said, okay, and then suddenly this woman, Karen, came into my life. So I was just like, oh, no. You know, because I, I've, like, that was part of my narrative of your life then. Um, but not not to, like, specifically talk about um, Karen anymore at this moment, but just, you know, living in a place like Camor and doing what we do as climbers, you do as a climber, um, you know, that actually, once I kind of extrapolated the situation with knowing Karen, I was like, well, yeah, but that's, something that happens up there and in our world and in the alpinism world and, you know, ice climbing world, like pretty frequently. And, you know, I'm like, gosh, that's just a place that could really, you know, knock someone who's on the precipice off, you know, or over it. Um, and it, it just, I don't know if there's a comment on that, but it's just a world that's fraught with these sudden, literally phone calls from friends or, you know, whatever it happens to be. That could be a real trigger into, you know, losing ground against what you were talking about. Uh, yes, I did lose ground, but it was temporary, thankfully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it lasted a long time, but it was an adult. There's a difference between an adult trauma and a childhood trauma. Right. I dealt with childhood trauma up until Karen's death. Mm -hmm. And then Karen's death was an adult trauma. Losing a parent is an adult trauma. So uh, if you have a stable life and a stable sure. mind and stable brain chemistry, we all encounter some form of trauma in our lives. But when you have an unstable brain chemistry and and unstable emotional self, then adult traumas can knock you out of orbit. So luckily, I had a pretty good stable underfooting when Karen died. But here's the reason I think it hit me so much, even though it's an adult trauma, Karen, in many ways, to me, represented, she was my closest friend up until that point, for certain. She was my confidant, and she was kind of like my like a mother. Mm. My mother was very cold and remote and distant. 
uh, it was, basically I was on my own from a young age, which probably explains my, my toughness. Mm-hmm. Karen was that softer female energy. She was the caring, nurturing, uh, you know, she could tell when something was wrong with me, when she could tell when something was off, she could tell when I was tail spinning again. Nobody had ever noticed. Nobody else in my life had ever noticed these things. And so losing her was like losing many different parts of myself, which I have, I have since come to terms with, of course, but in the beginning, it was very, uh, very, it was a very dramatic loss for me. I actually felt like I understood the epilogue part of it, as opposed to like thinking, okay, it's a foot. I didn't think of it as a footnote. I just thought of it exactly how you, not exactly, but I thought of it as like, you know, the period that was talked about in the book and at length, I think you know, mostly occurred before, um, before she, she disappeared on Foraker. So I just felt like, yeah, narratively it had fit in an epilogue in a way. And to be honest with you, having, you know, been, been through losing friends, your shorter treatment of it made sense to me because of what you just said. I was like, God, that would be so hard to write about, you know, and, 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 and to put it in there and, and, and again, just open that other whole thing. Um, which, so which it's either why, like leave it short or go gigantic. It's like you can't, there's not an in-between kind of a thing. That, that you hit the nail on the head. So I chose to uh, I chose to stop the book at 2004 and I did that for a reason because right. I, I, I could not open the next Pandora's box up. But it's interesting that you bring this up because there is a lot of trauma in climbing. I'm starting, uh, well, I'm not starting to realize, but... When I was, we've all had people die. When I was in Jasper, my first year of climbing, three people died and the, and the community was only about 10 people. It, it was this unfortunate set of events. So I feel like I saw the dark side of climbing early on. And then, of course, we all continue to lose people. And at a certain point, I just thought, well, this will just get easier as I get older because it's happening so often. And that's not the case. I'm becoming more and more sensitive to mountain tragedy and death the older I get. And I think the reason why is when you're 25, you still think you're invincible. And, you know, your friend died, but, you know, we're out there. We're climbing mountains. And then at some point in your life, you realize that, well, that friend at 26 never got to get married. He never got to have kids. He never got to... There's... There's so much you think about getting older when you're younger and you think, oh, that's way off and mm-hmm. I don't want to get older and, you know, it's horrible to get older. But then you get older and you realize all this experience you've got and all these things you've gone through. And and then you start, you know, your own parents start aging and like you just it's so complex and rich and full that you, you didn't see that when you were 25 because you'd never been older. And so I'm not sure if that's the only reason why it hits me harder, but now I watch people who lose spouses. I watch people who lose friends. I watch, you know, parents who lose children. And all of a sudden it takes on this meaning, kind of like Maria Coffey's book, the mm-hmm. where the mountain casts its shadow. All of a sudden I get her book more and more as I as I get older and watch more and more people uh die through climbing. Uh it's interesting that the newer edition is got the uh, the the forward by Michael Kennedy. Um, what did that mean to you that he wrote that? It meant the world to me that he wrote that. He wrote it not that long after the tragedy happened with Hayden, his son, uh, dying by suicide. Mm-hmm. After the tragedy of his girlfriend uh, dying in an avalanche, 
I didn't know when I reached out to Michael if how he was going to respond to my my request and he he answered me pretty much immediately and was more than happy to yeah it meant the world to me because it's a very lonely life the life I've lived I'm not lonely anymore but the life I lived was very lonely and sensitive people understand what I've lived that they understand how much toughness it took for me to make it through what I made it through. But it's, it's, it's lonely when people don't relate to you or they just think, oh, that's fine. Margo's over it now. Margo's <laughs> in a good place now. It, that, I still lived that. And it's like people who go to war and they watch all their buddies die in the platoon except they come back alive. It's like, sure, they made it through, but they're never going to forget that 11 of their buddies died. I've known Michael Kennedy for a long time, and after Hayden's death, Hayden and Inga's death, he was able to relate to me in a way that I'm not going to say that he didn't before because he's a very sensitive, intelligent man, but he related to me on a whole new level and a whole new depth in our conversations. I've had dinner with you know with him a couple times, met up with him a couple times, and our phone calls and our conversations are on a whole new level and it just gives me some kind of peace inside i would never will tragedy on anybody but it it's an incredibly peaceful feeling when michael knows i get his tragedy and he gets what i've lived through you've just hinted at let the struggles continued after after um the book even though it ends on a very high note they continue for you maybe daily. I'm not sure. But um, let's move on a little bit from that. And uh, let's talk a little bit about guiding. How is becoming a guide someone that teaches other people how to climb, especially other women at Chicks or uh, chicks with Picks? Yeah. Um, introducing people to the activity that changed my life. If I want to be dramatic, I would say it saved my life. Introducing people to that is very rewarding for me. Because my hope is always that people will get out of it what I got out of it. And there were the interesting thing about chicks, and it's one of the reasons I wrote my book. Women came to chicks and they were having midlife crisis. They were going through divorce. Some of them had recently had cancer. And I, I used to think to myself, wow, if I could only tell them my story. But I, it, I, I didn't because I was afraid to talk about my past up until I wrote my book. But all these incredible women would come through and they just, they were like, oh, you're so lucky. You've just always been athletic. You've always been healthy. And I'd be thinking, well, if you only knew. Mm -hmm. That was one of the thrusts for writing the book. I still love going out for myself. And I've loved uh, getting other people, particularly women, involved in ice climbing. Because even if the women aren't traumatized, the way I was, in our culture... I've met so many women that have never swung a hammer. Like, like I'll start to show to teach someone how to ice climb, and it's obvious to me they've never used a tool or swung a hammer. So, I see it as a physically empowering tool, specifically for women, because you know men go they work construction or they you know they fix cars, they played soccer in school, but I meet a lot of women that have not they don't really feel a lot of power in their bodies and climbing when you take someone to the base of an, a frozen waterfall and they get finally make it to the top you can just see there's this glee and this joy 
that reminds me of the first day that I ever climbed a frozen waterfall. Yeah, it's it's the absurdity of it all. I think oh, adds to that feeling of like, how did I just do this? I think what captivated me about yeah, it is yeah. I, I did a lot of psychedelics. So everyday reality was kind of boring to me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, people that talked about the weather and stuff, I really had a hard time with pedestrian conversations and, and, and stuff. One of the reasons I think I really loved ice climbing is it's beautiful. I love winters. I love the sparkles in the air, the snow on the mountains. But it was, I would call it strange. I, I see why people think it's, it's dumber. It's like, why would you do that? To me, I thought, I couldn't think of a stranger thing besides being an astronaut. Right. Or, or, or doing something, you know, going off in the desert with a knapsack on your back or something. It's, it was so... I also love barren landscapes. I believe barren landscapes allow us to feel what comes up from inside of us. I call what we live in a psychic onslaught. Like when you... When you think about, you know, social media comes at you, the billboards, like everything, everyone's always trying to capture your attention. When you go to these places, it can be the wilderness in my backyard or Antarctica. But when you go to these places, there's no psychic onslaught. You're just literally for 14 days, you're just pulling a sled to the South Pole, or you're just, you know, walking up the side of a, of a mountain in minus 30. But it just, it brings the world into stark relief, like the necessities of life into stark relief. And what I mean by that is you eat, you sleep, and you deal with the elements. And it makes you realize that you're an animal and you're alive. And I know that there's a lot of traditions, like the Christian tradition thinks, oh, the animal parts of you are are beneath you and you're this spiritual, you know, made in the image of Christ, if I can use a Christian analogy. I believe our biological basis is our most fundamental and important basis. And I'll tell you why. How we feel in the world is directly related to how we feel in our bodies. And so if you wake up and you have a sore stomach or something, like our biologies create our mindsets, but our biology also brings us into the present moment, which is why ice climbing brought me into the present moment away from my trauma we're physical creatures and our physicality actually anchors us to this amazing world and this amazing life. And, and I see this, this thing in our culture where we love rationality. We love reason. We love people who can think. We love academics. We, we love all this stuff up here, sometimes to the detriment of, of the physicality of us as human beings. And the fact that one of my favorite things to do is chop wood, light a wood stove, go get go get water from a spring, like the very basic necessities of life. We keep going back to this idea of, of climbing, saving your life. And climbing is, is something you've, you've kept with um, ever since then. So what does your climbing look like um, now? And what did it look like uh, sort of after you um, kind of emerged from, from all the trauma and it just became this thing that, uh, that was a big part of your life, not necessarily juxtaposed against the other parts of your life that had, had existed before? Uh, well, when I first came out of trauma, my climb, I got to achieve some climbing goals that I'd always wanted to do, like um, climbing some grade six test pieces that I'd never, you know, felt like I had the courage to get on or felt like I had the, you know, stability to get on. So at first, I went out and I climbed a bunch of stuff that I'd always wanted to climb. But I'd say that now, so that was more like in the 2000s, 
you know, right up until 2005 or something, 2006, I'd say that now I still, I love going out climbing. I love going in the mountains, but I become more and more conservative as the years go by. And as I lose more people and as I see more tragedy, Mm -hmm. because I don't just think about my own life ending anymore. I think about what it would do to the people around me, uh, what it would do to my partner. I'm very much more aware and sensitive to that than ever. And I can no longer abstract danger away. So mm-hmm. it's before I could just go, oh, here's the, I think it's safe. And I would right. just go. Right. Whereas now the whole time I'm driving there, the whole time I'm hiking in, it's like, okay, there's a, not a very good chance. But and then I think about other, you know, you have your kid. I think about my partner. Mm-hmm. Like I watch the young guys right now. They're out doing all these first ascents on Storm Creek. And I'm it's, I'm like, oh, I know how good that feels to be going out every day and that strong and everything else. What I try to do is um, I, I know people who tried to hang on really long and some of them are alive and some of them are dead. They tried to hang on and compete with the 25-year-olds and everything. I truly know it's I've, I've stepped back so far in mm-hmm. terms of being conservative climber. And plus I've got issues, you know, shoulder issues and stuff. It's time for me to step away and I need to fill my life with other things like uh, my speaking and my writing and helping the youth at risk and helping people get out of addiction and helping people. I have a practice like where I counsel people and stuff. And there's other things. I I kite kite skied when I was in Antarctica and I'd like to pursue that more. And, you know, even in the summertime, I mountain bike like I, I do many sports now. I don't just focus on one sport. I just go, you know, it's time to segue into other things. And I have to ask myself, is it the actual climbing? And I know I love climbing. I still love climbing. I'll go to Hafner Creek forever. I'll go to these, you know, safe venues forever. Is it the climbing or is it everything else that got built up around it? Like I I became Margot Talbot, the climber, not Margot Talbot, the kite skier. And Mm -hmm. so I have to ask myself, can I go do something where nobody knows me? I'm, I'm nobody. I'm just a girl there with a kite. Can I just go do something that doesn't have all this stuff around it? I've been going to the Banff Mountain Film Festival for decades, and Walter Bonatti came to speak. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite presentation, even though he spoke in Italian and it was translated. Somebody asked him partway through the presentation, why did you just quit? You, you were at the top of your game. It was world-class, putting up roots, soloing the roots. Why did you just quit and walk away? And Walter Bonatti said, because I'd learned everything I'd gone there to learn. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Margo for making that happen, connecting and doing such a great job. And I do want to clarify something that I breezed past a little too quickly considering its gravity, and that is the information around Karen McNeil disappearing on Mount Foraker. Her and Sue Knott were attempting the infinite spur and disappeared on the mountain. Bodies were never found, assumed to be in the snow, still on the mountain. That was in 2006. Two incredible women who disappeared at the height of their climbing careers. Karen was an expat New Zealander living in Camor, and Sue was actually a Coloradoan. But it was a blow to the uh, worldwide climbing community. And I remember the news and the news of the search being quite a shock. 
And of course, it must have been quite a blow to Margot, and I appreciate her talking about it. And I want to make sure that if this interview resonated with you or you read all that glitters and maybe recognize yourself in there, get in touch with Margot. Go to margotalbot.com. She can uh, offer her own services or certainly advice about, uh, about moving through trauma, anxiety, depression, addiction, these things that do, in fact, populate our climbing world, despite my rosy depiction of it here on the Enormacast often. It's out there. Climbers are just people. Furthermore, if you see some of this behavior in friends, remember, checking each other's knots is a metaphor. So look out for each other in a lot of ways. You see these addiction problems, you see these depression problems, reach out to them. We do have a tendency to shy away from these things in our society, and I'd imagine climbers are probably even more skittish about, uh, about putting cracks in that facade that climbing is just all fun and games. And let me tell you, the, uh, the price you pay for not approaching someone about these things can be, uh, can be very painful much more painful than the awkwardness or shock of uh, bringing it up with someone. So screw up your courage and get some help for your friends. And if climbing is just fun and games for you, let's keep it that way by being safe, avoiding tragedy, paying attention, and of course, checking your knot. tell my students follow your bliss follow follow your bliss your bliss where the deep sense of being in form and and, and going where your body and the soul want to go uh, when you have that feeling then stay with it and don't let anyone throw you off 